And it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hirah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore him a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him, and Judah took a wife for Er his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. You may be seated. Dad, today we won't be doing our Thanksgiving meal. This is historic Sunday uh, before Thanksgiving that we gather in the fellowship hall uh, to eat great food and to fellowship. But uh, because of where we're at with the pandemic, we're unable to do that. Uh, but we will get to take a better supper this morning, the Lord's Supper. And so I, I pray that we have prepared our hearts and are preparing our hearts for that this morning. Uh, just a few announcements this morning. Uh, if you would mark your calendars in um, two weeks, on Wednesday night, we'll have a business meeting. That will be the business meeting that we come and present the budget uh, for 2021 to the church. So please be uh, aware of that and um, prepare uh, for your calendars for that. Uh, we will not have Wednesday evening services this Wednesday evening because of the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, so mark your calendars for that as well. Other than that, I have no announcements. I hope I'm not forgetting any. Um, but to this morning, we come to a very difficult passage, one I wish we could uh, skip over. This is one of those moments. Uh, I'm like, I was studying the last couple weeks, and I was like, oh man, there's some things in it. Um, because there's little children in the room this morning, I'll um, see how can I say this. I'll make it PG instead of what it's rated in the Bible. I'll uh, storytell some of that rather than uh, read it. If your ch children has questions, you get to answer it uh, for them. Uh, but it's it's one of those places in God's word that it's you you come to the passage and think, why is it here? Uh, it, it just seems so out of place. And this morning, I want to look at the reason that Moses, the writer, places chapter 38 exactly where he does. But let me pray for us, and then we'll get started this morning. God, we do, we come, and we humble ourselves before your mighty hand. And we ask and plead with you through the Holy Spirit uh, that even these moments before we come to the Lord's Supper, your table that you have prepared for us, we did not prepare it for ourselves, but you prepared it for us. It's a constant reminder to us, your great sacrifice, uh, both you, God, that sacrificed your son for us and you, Jesus, that sacrificed your life for us, that we would uh, have a life and life to the full. And so I pray for us this morning as we uh, hear from your word, we hear from you, that you, Holy Spirit, would open our minds, our ears, and our hearts to receive exactly what you have for us. So lead us, guide us, and direct us this morning. This is your holy word. We praise in Christ's mighty name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn, as Jared says, to Genesis chapter 38. Uh, remember, I said last week that we're starting the life of Joseph. We're coming to uh, the tail end of the book of Genesis. And the, the last main character that we're, we'll study is Joseph, the, the second to the youngest son of Jacob. And we talked last week how God was going to use Jacob to fulfill his promise uh, back in the early part of Genesis that God had promised that his people would spend 400 years in slavery. 
And so Joseph is how we get to that place, how we get into uh, the story of Exodus. It's through this man, it's through the wickedness of his brothers that send Joseph into slavery. And so as we were there last week, we come to the end of that passage. His brothers had sold him off. They had made this plan with the father to trick the father that he was dead. And, and there we have it. There's the, the end of it. And now we jump into chapter 38. And 38 seems way out of place. There's not really a mention of Joseph uh, at, at all in this text. And we're not going to pick up to Joseph again until chapter 39, but this is the bridge between 37 and 39. I believe that the writer Moses did it for two reasons. The first reason is this, to, to show us a contrast be, between Joseph and his brothers. The first is he's going to contrast the wickedness of the brothers Mainly in this chapter, he's going to show us the wickedness of Judah, but he's going to show us the righteousness of Joseph in the next chapter. So Moses is setting up the character of who Joseph is by highlighting the wickedness of his brothers, in particular Judah in this passage. But I think the more important theme of this passage, as we'll see, is this. God will continue to show us that his promises will always come true in spite of the wickedness of people. Let me say that again. This chapter is going to show us that God's promises always come true in spite of the wickedness of people. God does not have to use righteous people to accomplish his will. God can use wicked people to accomplish his will, and we'll see that in this text. Praise God for that. The other thing is a side note that you and I way more identify with Judah than we do with Joseph in this text. And so God is going to show us two things. The contrast between these two brothers and God's ultimate purpose, passion, plan, and the fulfillment of his promise. Remember that promise was back in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, the wickedness of man had come about through the sin of Adam and Eve. And God steps in and says, through you, Eve, I'm going to bring about the Savior of the world. And we're going to see that in this passage. And so I believe that this passage is going to bring us to, you can mark it in your notes, this is going to bring us into what we're going to start studying next week is uh, the next four weeks, which is crazy to think, will we'll be in our Advent series. But this is a great bridge from where, we're heading, where we are into the Christmas story. Please get out your Bible highlighters, your pens, your pencils. You'll need them this morning. So let's first look at the passage, how it connects 37 to 39 by the contrast of uh, Judah and his sibling Joseph. In this passage, we're going to see that Judah separates himself from the family. We saw last week that the brothers separated Joseph from uh, his family. Second, we'll see uh, that Judah marries outside of the covenant of God. He marries outside of the will of God, the promises of God. We see Joseph remains faithful to God in all circumstances. We'll see that Judah is a liar, and we will see that Joseph is a truth teller. We'll see that uh, Judah disobeys God's law and God's word. We'll see that Joseph obeys God's word and his law. We'll see that Judah gives in to sexual temptation, and yet Joseph remains faithful 
during sexual temptation. And last, we'll see that Judah has a desire to punish Tamar. But we see the heart of Joseph has the heart of forgiveness like our Lord Jesus. So there's the contrast. And now let's get into the passage. I'll storytell rather than, than read it for both the, the length of the passage and the content of the passage. But the outline is this. Verses 1 through 11 are the sins of Judah. Verses 12 through 26 are Tamar's triumphant plans. Tamar's triumphant plan and last we'll see verses 27 through 30, God's provision. So let's look at chapter uh, 38, verses 1 through 11, the sins of Judah. It says this in the text, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived. So here's the text that We see that Judah, in his wickedness, leaves the family. Remember, it it could be, there's so much speculation. Why would he leave? Remember what he had just done. He had just deceived his father. He had just lied about his father. He had just sold his brother into slavery. He had just gained profit off of his brother. If you are like me, when we sin, do we not want to run as far away from the place that we sin? Our guilt, our conscience, the Holy Spirit is working on us. Rather than repent, what do we do? We run. It's what we saw in in Jonah several years ago. That the, the, The Spirit of God was on Jonah. What did Jonah do? He wanted to run rather than sit in the presence of God. And I would submit to you this morning, I believe that Judah was running from the presence of God. Remember where he was at. He was in the promised land where God was going to bestow all these promises on him. And it got too much. So what does it say? He ran from his family. He goes as far away as possible. And in doing so, he begins to make really, really poor choices. Really poor choices. He runs from his brother. He runs from the protection of his father. And it says he comes to an Adulamite, or you can rename him a Canaanite. And in seeing this Canaanite, he then sees what? A Canaanite woman. Remember what God had said to God's people. In Genesis chapter 24, remember that Abraham told his servant, hey, we are not to give in to the Canaanite people. They are wicked people. Do not give my son to the Canaanites. And over and over in the text, we see God is saying to his people, do not marry into wickedness. And what does he do? He first leaves. His first sin is leaving the family to run from the presence of God. And running from the presence of God, his second sin is that he marries a pagan woman. Paul would later on talk about this. He he talks about not being unequally yoked, and that's exactly what Judah does here in the text. And the ramifications that come from this decision are monumental. So he runs from God, he sins by taking on a Canaanite woman, and then it says this, Not only did he see her, but he took her and went into her. He lay with her. He had relations with her. I'll let you explain what that means to your children later. But if you see in verse 2, it says this. It says, then Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. That word saw ought to remind us. I believe it's 1 Samuel. Where What did David do? He saw Bathsheba. 
not just the seeing that this word talks about. It's the seeing and now the contemplation and now the fantasy and now the desire. It's not the seeing that's the sin. It's all that going that goes on in his heart. Later on, we'll, we'll see next week that, yes, Joseph saw Potiphar's wife. But he what? He ran from temptation. Judah gives in to temptation. And in giving to temptation, Judah has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Selah. And those three sons, you'll, you'll see in this text that the first son is Ur, and Judah gives his son, Ur, finds a what? Another wicked woman, Tamar, a Canaanite woman, to give into relationship with her, to, to marry her. So he's beginning to move further and further away from the presence of God, the commands of God, the promises of God, and now moving his family, what? Away from the presence of God. This is why it's so important. I'll talk to the men. Men, we are to lead our families because when we don't lead our families, we lead them to destruction. Another way to say it is this, men. We are always leading our families. I would submit to you, where are you leading them? Are you leading to God's righteousness and holiness? Are you leading them to depravity and sinfulness? There's no, uh, there's no neutral in this car. It's either towards righteousness or away from righteousness. And we see Judah continue to move away from the righteousness of God. So he gives his oldest son to this woman, Tamar. And Tamar, it says this, he gave in verse 6, and Judah took the wife of Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. Well, how come he was wicked? Because his father was not leading him. His father was leading him to wickedness rather than to righteousness. And it would make sense that if your father's not leading you to righteousness, the byproduct is going to be wickedness. And so here the oldest son is a wicked man. And now the next few words are startling. It says he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. We can no, go nowhere in our wickedness. We are always in the Lord's sight. And then it says this. Then the Lord put him to death. I mean, he doesn't even really, like he just wipes him out. R remember what God did to the men during Noah's age and their wickedness. He wiped them out. God deals severely with wickedness. And so he wipes him out. And then it says this. So now Tamar is a widow. But then in verse 8, it says, Then Judah said to Onan, Go to your brother's wife and perform the duties of a brother-in-law. Meaning in that day, when the, the older son of a family had a wife and it, she, he passed away, then the responsibility fell on who? The, the next son that was in line. And so now Judah goes to the next son, Onan, and says, hey, now here's your responsibility. Take your responsibility, care for your brother, so that his line will continue forward. The, the, the line that we'll see later, the line of Christ. It says that this is the part I'll, I'll storytell rather than read. Basically, he did not perform the duties that God had told him to. He took her as his wife and then had relationship with her, but did not fulfill the duties within the, the relationship. He got pleasure from her, but did not fulfill his responsibility with her to have a child. And God said that is wicked. 
because he disobeyed God. He ran from God. And it says this in the text. He also was put to death by God. So here we have Tamar. First first husband dead. God strikes him dead because of his wickedness. The, The second son comes along. God strikes him dead because of his wickedness. And now there's one son left. He's a younger son. And Judah then goes and has this conversation with Tamar about the younger son. Judah makes this promise with her that says, hey, when this son of mine gets old enough to marry, I promise I'm going to give you this son of mine. I'm going to promise you that the line that you married into will continue because of my younger son. But in the text, if you read it carefully, Judah had no intention of ever giving that son away. He thought to himself in the text, if you read uh, the Hebrew, it's he had this idea that she was bad luck. I mean, you go two for two with someone's sons and they die like I'm just saying. So Judah is thinking, if I give this son of mine, my only son, my last son to her and she dies, then my whole line is out. I won't be able to to continue on. My lineage ends with him. And so he tricks Tamar and says to Tamar, I promise when he comes of age, I'll give him to you. You just go back home and wait for him. And Tamar goes home and waits for him. Now let's pick up. Here's Judah in his craftiness. He's going to get caught, as we always do. But here's Tamar's triumphant plan in verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shula's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Tim, Timnia to his sheep shearers. So there's this time that he's now, his wife has passed away. He's, he's mourning the loss of his wife. And now he has this plan. When it means the sheep shearers, there's this festival once a year that, that the men would come and they'd have this huge festival. And so here is Judah going up to this huge festival after the, the, his, the death of his wife. But it says this in verse 13. It says, and when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up. She's, he's coming here to shear his sheep. She makes this plan. So here's Tamar been sitting at home waiting and waiting and waiting. You see, in that culture, she was unable to marry. She couldn't get remarried. She was betrothed to this young man, so she was stuck like Chuck. She, she had to wait and wait and wait. And she got to the point she's tired of waiting, and so much so she finally figured out, wait, this man has tricked me. He's duped me. And so now I'm going to dupe him. I'm going to trick him back. And it says this in verse 14. Here's her plan. She took off her widow's garments and covered her her face with a veil, wrapped herself up and sat at the entrance to the city, which was the which was on the road to the festival. For she saw that Selah was grown up and she had not been given him to marriage. She sees that she's been duped. She's been tricked. So now she comes up with a plan. Here's her plan in practice. See, for a widow, they had to dress a certain way. So she's been dressing a certain way since Onan had passed away. She had to dress in such a way that showed to society that she was a widow and that she was a widow in waiting. And so here she is, a widow in waiting, and she says, I'm going to take off all this garment 
and put on the garments, and you'll see this in the text, that of a cult prostitute. I'm going to trick Judah into thinking that I'm a prostitute that, so that he will come and have a relationship with me so that I can make sure that the line of Judah continues. And that's what she does. And here comes Judah. Judah comes into town. He sees Tamar at the entrance of the city, and they have this conversation. He believes that she is a prostitute. And so they have this conversation. It's picked up in verse 16. He turned to her, Tamar, on the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? What's the price? He answered her, I'll give you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. She's asking, the, the goat's not here, the payment's not here, so, so I need a down payment to make sure you make the payment. And so she says, what is the down payment for the payment? She says, I don't really trust you, which she had all the right not to trust him because she had been duped by him for how long? Years. And so he says to her, he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. And then she rose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So here's the moment that she gets back at him. She presents herself as a cult prostitute. He has relations with her. He makes a down payment and then gives her these three items, a signet ring, the cord that holds a signet ring. When we think signet ring, we think it's put on their hands, like pressed. That's, that's not how they did it. It was a ring that was put onto a cord they wear around their neck. So she, he basically takes the cord and the ring off of his neck, hands it to her, and then hands her his staff. This, those two things show the power or the prestige that Judah had. He was not just an ordinary man. He was a man of great stature in the land. And she knew that. She took that as evidence of who he would be. So she leaves, goes on her way. He goes on his way. She's pregnant unbeknownst to him. And then her plan comes to fruition. In verse 20, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to, to back his pledge for the woman's hand. But he did not find her. Three different places you'll see in the text that they went looking for her and could not find her. Why is that? Because there's no cult prostitute. She wasn't a prostitute. She was the daughter-in-law in waiting to be married. So they continue to look, they continue to look, they continue to look, and they finally think, man, we, we are, I'm scot-free. And then it says this. They come three months later in verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Now here's Judah's chance to get back at her to get rid of her. She'd been a thorn in his flesh since day one. After the first child, the second child, now she's waiting for the third child. He doesn't want to withhold his promises. And now Judah thinks, I can get rid of her. And what does he say? 
He says, bring her out here and let us burn her. Let's get rid of her. Well, little did he know that Tamar had something way up her sleeve. As she was being brought out to him, she sent word to Judah, her father-in-law. Now, here's her power, if you will. Here's her, I got you moment. She presents to, she says, to the man whom these belong, I am pregnant. Please identify whose these are. The signet, the cord, and the staff. I wonder in that moment when she, in her hands, presents those three items, if he went as white as a ghost. Oh. I can't get away with anything. I've been caught. For these last several months, these last several years, I've gotten away with everything. And in a moment's time, his sin is revealed to him by the very one he wants to kill. And then he says this, a very odd statement, but you'll see the reason for the power of this statement. Then Judah identified them and says, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. In that moment, God's righteousness prevailed through Tamar, because Tamar was more concerned about doing what God had called her to do, which would be in the line of Judah, to carry the line on. And so she is a righteous woman, more righteous than Judah. We see two things as a way of application, this in this first part of this section. Two, we know this, that Tamar is way more righteous than Judah. And two, His lies came out. Two things we see again. God uses the wickedness of people to bring about his plan. The second thing we do, we can never hide from God in our sin. Whether it's days, weeks, months, or years, in God's goodness and kindness to us, our sin will be revealed to us. But here's probably the most important part of the entire passage. It's God's provision. The last four verses. It says this in verse 27. This is probably some six months later, if you do the math, right? Three months that she was pregnant before she got brought out. Now is the time of her labor. That's six more months. So nine months has has passed. And the time of her labor came. And there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a cord, a, a scarlet thread or cord around his hand, saying, this is the one who came out first. But as soon as, he, with, as, soon as she said that, the, the one withdrew his hand, and behold, the other brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made yourself. Therefore, his name shall be Perez, and the other son or the other brother came out with the scarlet thread. So the, the, the older one, what happens again? Doesn't come out before the younger one. That's a theme that we've seen throughout Genesis. 
the younger will always serve, the, the, the older will always serve the younger. We see that again in the text. And now the second Zerha comes out. And so here's the promise of God. That she has twins. She has two boys. Remember the promise was that the, the, the thing that man was trying to thwart was her to have children. That's what Judah was wanting to do, not allow her to have kids. And now God's provision steps into the place. She has kids. I want you to turn with me, and this is why this is the most important part of the text. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. You know this story well. We read it all the time around this time of year, the Christmas story. Matthew, in his journey to begin the life of Jesus, starts with a genealogy. I'll read several places. This is where we've been, and I'll stop as we cover where we've been. Now, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus. This is the promise of the birth of Christ from Genesis chapter 3, in other words. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of who? Judah. And his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez. And Zerah by who? Tamar. You see, chapter 38 in the text is so important because as we've said, God has a plan and a purpose to bring about salvation to the world. And he does it throughout the book of Genesis through what? Sin and chaos. Like when we come to this text here in the passage, it's like, how can God redeem this story? How is this story even meaningful to us? But we see how this story is meaningful to us because of one word in the genealogy of Jesus, Tamar. Remember who Tamar was, a Canaanite woman who nobody wanted, who everyone disregarded. But who? God. And God was going to use Tamar in a powerful way to bring about the salvation of the world. Remember what I said at the beginning of the message. That, that two things, that God, he always accomplishes what? His purposes, his passions, his plans, and for sure, his promise. And he had made a promise that he was going to send Christ Jesus to us. You know, there's only five women in the whole genealogy of Jesus that are mentioned. Only five. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Tamar posed as a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was a Moabite or outside of the promises of God. And Bathsheba was an adulteress. And Mary was assumed to be an adulteress. 
all five women in the genealogy of Jesus are surrounded by what? Scandal. And yet God in his sovereignty and goodness chose these five women that were outside of the promise of God to be the promise of God. These were not Jewish women except for Mary and Bathsheba. They were wicked pagan women, yet God used them mightily to bring about the salvation of the world, which says this to me, and it's a great promise to us this morning. The first again, that God will always accomplish his plan. No matter the sinfulness of the people. So wherever you're at this morning, no matter how far you think you are from God, God still can and wants and will use you if you repent and turn from him. The second is this, which is of great promise to me, and I hope of great promise to you. Christ Jesus himself came from a long line of what? A dysfunctional family. I mean, you go through his genealogy, and we didn't even go through all of it, but person after person after person after person. This is not a lineage of righteousness and holiness, but more of wickedness and depravity and rebellion against God. And yet we see throughout the lives of these men and women, their repentance. And when they repented to God, God used them mightily. And so two things again that I'll say is that God, no matter what you've done, will forgive you of your sins first and foremost. And in that, God will use you and use me to accomplish his passions, his purposes, and his promises. Amen? Thank God for that. Again, I said at the beginning, you are way, and I am way more like Judah than I am Joseph. And look who God used to bring salvation to the world. He did not use Joseph. He used Judah to bring about salvation to the world. Which this morning will come to the Lord's Supper as a reminder that God has a purpose and a passion and a plan for us. And this reminder, though it's in a cup this morning, and it's not how we normally do it, but this little cup is a reminder that God has great plans for us. But his greatest plan for us was to save us for all unrighteousness. His body and his blood was poured out for us so that we could have life and life to the full. This morning we'll take the Lord's Supper just a little bit different. I'll pray for us and then we'll open both elements at the same time and take them together. Let me pray for us. God, I'm grateful, even here in this text. I'm coming to it this week wondering, what is it even here for? It seems so out of place. But as you, through your Holy Spirit, began to reveal to me, God, you began to show me that in spite of me, you'll still use me in powerful ways when I come to salvation and repentance. 
but nothing I can do, God, can thwart your plan. pray this morning as we come to your table that this juice and this bread will remind us that you poured out your life for us. Because you poured out your life for us and you died on a cross for us, we have salvation. And it's in that salvation that we have life and hope and promise. I pray as we come to your table that you would remind us this morning of your great promises, your great goodness, and your love for us. We're thankful for the body. We're thankful for your crucifixion. We're thankful for your death. But most importantly, God, we're thankful that you rose Christ Jesus from the dead. I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. May we take the Lord's Supper together this morning. Christ's body broken for you. Christ's blood poured out for you. God, we are thankful for your blood and your body broken for us and poured out for us. We have so much to be thankful for, but your body and blood is what we have most to be thankful for, our salvation. We're grateful for that. God, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you as Lord and Savior, that this morning would be the morning they would surrender their will and their life over to you. They would see that nothing, nothing, God, is unforgivable. Nothing, God, in our lives is unusable for your glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please rise for the benediction this morning. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget, forget not all of his benefits. Grace and peace be with you. Remember, no Wednesday evening services, and have a great, happy Thanksgiving. Grace and peace.